Well, have you ever heard the story of a guy named Pat Tillman? Pat Tillman was a successful pro NFL player in the late 90s, played for the Arizona Cardinals. He was an all-pro selection in 2000, and once he was even offered a five-year, $9 million contract with the St. Louis Rams. He turned that down out of loyalty to the Cardinals, which tells you something about his character. Well, the the following year came 9-11, and shortly thereafter, America was in war. And so at the end of the 2001 season, he was offered another $3.6 million extension to stay with the Cardinals, but he turned that down too. Why? Well, this time, to join the Army and go fight in Iraq. And that's what he did. He went through basic training, and he, uh, he enlisted, went through basic training, and he participated in the original invasion in, in Iraq in September 2003. But shortly thereafter, he was tragically killed in April 2004. And for some today, it's easy to criticize Tillman because he gave up seemingly everything for not a whole lot. But Tillman surely wouldn't see it that way as he had a high view of his country. True, he left behind a wife, a career, millions of dollars, all for the love of his country, but he counted that a worthy sacrifice. Many would say that that sounds crazy, they'd they'd never make that decision, but Tillman simply valued his country and the freedom it affords above all else, and to him it was something worth sacrificing for. It was worth giving up everything to defend and protect, and there's something admirable about that. Well, in a way, salvation in Christ is not all too different. Jesus said, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, pick up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man who gains the whole world but forfeits his soul? Salvation, as you know, means following Christ. It's a free gift. But it costs you everything. It costs you your, your very life. To those who know Christ and the salvation he affords, they know it's, it's worth it. It's a worthy exchange. But to the world, it's madness. We're fools for giving up so much just to follow Christ. But it's, it's true. Only those who lose everything gain Christ. This is an essential truth of the Christian faith, one we're going to learn much more about this morning, specifically from the Apostle Paul and even his life. And to the world, Paul is an anomaly. Not quite sure what to make about what make of him. It's undisputed. He's a real historical figure. He really existed. He really wrote these books of the Bible. But they don't know what to make of him and his radical transformation. How he went from being Christianity's greatest enemy to overnight becoming Christianity's greatest ally. That, that doesn't just happen. It'd be like if Osama bin Laden converted to Christianity and became a great evangelist. Just how do you explain such a radical transformation? And especially for Paul, becoming a Christian, he gained nothing, worldly speaking, and lost everything, even his own life. So how do you explain that? Well, Scripture gives an explanation, and you might recall Acts chapter 9, tells the story of his initial conversion. And just for, for context, I'll read it for you. Just listen along, Acts 9, 1 through 8. It says how Saul, his old name, was still breathing threats and murder 
against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Then he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter to the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him to Damascus. The account continues after this, but in short, Saul started that journey on the Damascus road, being a, a spiritually blind man, although he could see. But he ended that journey as a blind man with newfound spiritual sight. Though temporarily blinded, for the first time ever, he could see things clearly. What happened to him? Well, he saw Jesus. He got to know Jesus, the real Jesus. Jesus came to Paul, invaded his darkness, lifted the veil from his eyes so he could see the light, so to speak. And Jesus gave Paul spiritual vision by which he could see things as they really are. He could finally see that his self-righteousness, his religious accomplishments, were the very things keeping him from God. He spent his entire life pursuing this work's righteousness, thinking that was getting him closer to God. Then he realized he was attacking the very gate that leads to the kingdom, and that is Christ. But this changed when he saw Jesus for who he really is. And Paul realized the only way into the kingdom is through the gate of Christ. And entrance is only granted by those who come with faith, a naked faith. Nothing else but faith in Christ alone. Where you must first cast down all your works, all your accomplishments, all your boasts, and come boasting in Christ alone. That's what happened to Paul that day as he was changed and confronted by Christ. But, but there's more. I mean, the, this account in Acts chapter 9 leaves several blanks that we just wonder about. Like, what was really going on in his mind as all this took place? What changes took place in his heart, in his thinking, as he came to Christ? I mean, what a, what a transformation. What, what was he thinking? Well, where Acts is silent, Philippians speaks. And with that in mind, you can open your Bibles now to Philippians chapter 3. For here... Paul becomes very autobiographical and we gain a window into his heart where he leads us to understand how he went from being the church's greatest adversary to the church's greatest advocate. And so in chapter 3 of Philippians, verses 4 through 11, Paul recounts the inner workings of his salvation. He tells us his thoughts before salvation, at salvation, after salvation salvation as well. And although this is autobiographical, it's still normative for all believers, all salvation experiences, because there's still just one way into the kingdom of heaven. And it's through this, excuse me, the same faith that Paul found. And therefore, there's much to be learned from Paul's experience of coming to Christ. And that's what we're going to start doing this morning. 
This is a profound and very extremely significant passage. So much so, we're going to spend several weeks camping out here as we make our way through Philippians 3, 4 through 11. But I want to extract from this passage three checkpoints on the path of salvation that you too must pass through to be saved. Just a way of thinking about this. That's helpful. Three checkpoints on the path of salvation that you too must pass through to be saved. And look, I know you're not the Apostle Paul, but again, there's still just one way of salvation. And Paul found the way. He was lost. He thought he was on the way, but he was, he was way off. But he came to find the way. And we find in him a pattern, a pattern of salvation that applies to all. It's just like Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13 through 14. Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter into it. But the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life. And there are few who find it. There's only one way of salvation and many don't find it. They're on a religious path, but they still miss the entrance to the kingdom. And I know you you don't want that to be you. And so we can identify from Paul's experience these three checkpoints that ensure you're on the right path. You're on the right way that leads to God. And so we're going to cover this morning exclusively just checkpoint number one, which is this. Number one, you must reject the flesh. You must reject the flesh. What do we mean by this? Well, if you weren't here, a brief recap from last week will help. If you remember from last week, the Philippian church, we learned they were being besieged by some opponents. And really, that wasn't so much a siege as like a Trojan horse attack as you had these, these group of people who claimed to be Christians. They infiltrated the church. But they were spreading false doctrine. They were known as the Judaizers. These were Jews who had come to accept Jesus as the Messiah, but they retained their legalism. So they taught that, you know, for example, Gentiles. For them to be saved, they had to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses like, like all the Jews. In essence, theirs was still a works-based righteousness they, in a measure, accepted Jesus, but they rejected his gospel. And so last week we saw how Paul warned the church against such people, those who put their confidence in the flesh, in their self-righteousness before God. And so we read, for example, verse 2, verse 3 of Philippians 3, where Paul said of them, beware of the dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the false circumcision." For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. We saw last time how Paul was starting to build this contrast between them and us. They glory in their religion. They boast in themselves and their efforts before God. But all such boasting is false. And by contrast, we boast in, in Christ alone. That they put their confidence in their flesh to save them, that is to say their, their efforts themselves. But that too is a false confidence. And again, in contrast, we put no confidence in the flesh, but in Christ alone. But it's that last thought from verse 3, putting no confidence in the flesh. It strikes a chord with Paul. 
And that's because this really is humanity's greatest pitfall. It's one of the greatest lies Satan ever told. Not that God doesn't exist, but that you can get to him on your own. You, you really don't need a savior. Just, just be good. Be good enough. Save yourself. That's what this confidence in the flesh is all about. Every world religion recognizes the need for salvation of some sort. And every religion solves that problem in the same way by resorting to this confidence in the flesh. Works righteousness. You can be righteous. You can become righteous before God by doing good things. Being a good person. Keeping law, religious ordinances, rites and rituals. And you'll make up for all your sins and God will accept you. But Christianity is the only religion in the world that defies this trend. For us, Paul says, we put no confidence in the flesh. Zero. As those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Rather, we put confidence in Christ because he alone is our only hope, our only ground, our only means of becoming right with God. So here come these Judaizers, and they're trying to suck Christianity down to the quicksand of works religion, works righteousness. I mean, can you imagine trying to build a house on quicksand? And these Jewish Christians, they, they had not truly followed Christ or the true gospel. They were still legalists. They were just rebranding. That's all they were doing. And so Paul warns against them and against their false gospel. But you see, this is extra personal for Paul because he used to be just like them. I mean, you get that, right? He used to be like almost identical to who these people were. Paul himself used to be all aboard the train of self-righteousness before God. In fact, he's like the conductor of that train. He was leading the charge of works righteousness when it comes to getting to God. Before his true conversion, he was the spokesman for putting confidence in the flesh. But Paul learned firsthand he was on the wrong set of tracks. So it doesn't matter as, as, as however much you excel, you're still going the wrong way. And that, that track, that train only leads to destruction. And so with this in mind, starting in verse 4, Paul transitions to drive this point home further. And that Christ is our only hope. And he does so by pointing to his own example as a case in point. That all confidence in the flesh is vain. And he's, he's the greatest example. He really is. And so now with all this in mind, we can read what he has to say in verses 4 through 6, our passage 4 this morning. He finished verse 3, that we put no confidence in the flesh. And then he says, verse 4, Although I myself might have confidence, even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Hopefully you can see what Paul is doing here. He's beating the Judaizers at their own game. You've heard of a badge of honor, I'm sure, in the military. A badge of honor is a medal or token signifying an awarded honor or distinction. It's meant to be worn on your sleeve or your shirt with pride, displaying to all what you've accomplished. 
Well, these Jews and these Judaizers, they were all about these spiritual badges of honor. They wore their heritage, their lineage, their birthright, their rituals, their customs. They're keeping the law all as badges of honors, prominently displayed on their sleeve for all to see, for everyone to know how righteous they were, including God. This is what they took pride in. This is what they boasted of, these badges, which, mind you, they all were earned in the flesh. I mean, that they, they earned these, that they took, that this was their confidence, their, their boast. And they even counted in these badges of honor to save them, to deliver them before God. They fully expected that when they stood before God, they would need only to, to flash their badges of honor before him, and he would immediately recognize their worth, their value. It's like they're VIP guests, and God would say, oh, I see your righteousness. Come this way. Let me take you to your front row seat in the kingdom. But this is a false confidence and a false hope. And any who trust in themselves and their efforts to save them are in real danger. They're going to be greeted with a rude awakening when they're turned away at the door. It's like you buy scalp tickets at a Dodgers game only to realize at the gate that they're counterfeit and you're turned away. And these people, they, they place their hope in a counterfeit confidence and they will be turned away. And Paul, he's going to proceed to prove this in an argument from the greater to the lesser. And he's the greater. When it comes to confidence in the flesh, there's, there's no beating him. And so he says in verse 4, although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. What he's saying is, you know, if, if there ever was a person who could be justified by self-righteousness, it would be Paul. The old Paul, that is, back when he was known as Saul. Back then, he had these Judaizers beat hands down when it comes to the game of self-righteousness. He, he won that game. But to show the Philippian church and us how works righteousness amounts to nothing, he's going to recall his old boasts in the flesh, which were greater than anyone else's, and yet show how even that amounted to nothing before God. And so he recalls seven of his badges of honor in two, two categories, those that were his by birth, those that were his by effort, and then diminish them all. And so let's look at these seven. While we're here, let's take a look at these old badges of honor. Seven in particular. First, you see in verse four, he says, or rather verse five, circumcised on the eighth day. This was Paul's ritual badge, his ritual badge. Of course, he leads off with this because this was the key issue among the Judaizers. They made circumcision the defining badge of belonging to God's people. Now, Paul had this badge. In fact, he was even circumcised on the eighth day. And you might recall in the Old Testament, circumcision was prescribed for newborns on the eighth day after their birth. And this became the defining rite of Judaism. So to say that you were circumcised on the eighth day was to say you were a Jew from birth. You've been in since the beginning. And you're set apart from pagans, from Jewish converts, Basically, circumcision on the eighth day was like a badge that read, you know, saved from birth. Second, Paul says 
He was of the nation of Israel. This was his race badge. Being of the nation of Israel meant being a descendant of Abraham. This set Paul apart from the Gentiles. He had a holy heritage, a heritage many Jews relied on to save them. This, this was a family tree you wanted to be a part of. Paul wasn't some half-breed Jew like the Samaritans. He wasn't some just convert to Judaism. No, he was a purebred Jew, which means he was chosen by God, right? They're the chosen race, so you're in. And then third, Paul mentions he was of the tribe of Benjamin. This was Paul's ancestry badge, his ancestry badge. Not only was he born a Jew, he was even from the tribe of Benjamin. And Benjamin had become a very prominent tribe. And they found many reasons to take pride in being from Benjamin. Benjamin was the last of Jacob's sons to be born, born to his beloved wife, Rachel. The only one born in the Holy Land, the tribe of Benjamin later gave Israel her first king, King Saul. There's a good chance that Paul, who used to be Saul, was named after King Saul, their most prominent member of Benjamin. Later, along with Judah, Benjamin was the only tribe that remained loyal to the Davidic dynasty when the kingdom split. And actually, Jerusalem and the temple technically resided within Benjamin's tribal limits. They had the temple. So you can see, and the list goes on, they found many reasons to boast. I'm sure they thought they were the greatest tribe. So you've got the ritual badge, the race badge, and the ancestry badge. And these first three were just earned by birth. You either got them or you don't. And, and Paul had them. He was born into privilege, a privilege he used to boast in. But that's not all. There's four more. The next four badges came by his own hard work. He had to work for these, but he did. He excelled everyone in work. And so fourth, he says he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. This is Paul's purity badge. Not talking sexual purity, talking ethnic purity. And you see, Paul, he's born in Asia Minor, and many of the Jews in his day were influenced by the dominant Greek culture. And any Jew who was so influenced was known as a Hellenized Jew. Basically, they were Jewish, but they lived like they were Greek, like the pagans, basically. But Paul, he was no Hellenistic Jew. Rather, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. That's what he's getting at. He knew Greek, yes. He was educated, but he did not let Greek culture influence him or change him. In fact, later on, still at a young age, he moved to Jerusalem and studied under the famous rabbi Gamaliel, further setting himself apart. He was a true Hebrew. He was not one of these Greek, you know, Jewish Greeks who had defiled his heritage. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews. Next comes badge number five, where Paul says he was, as to the law, a Pharisee. This, you could say, was his obedience badge. Paul was so zealous for the Hebrew law that he became a Pharisee. And you, you know the Pharisees, they ring a bell. This was the strictest group of Jews who cherished the law, strictly interpreted the law, and kept it to an extreme so imagine you're going to the restaurant, you order iced tea, you get a packet of sugar, you pour it out on the table, you carefully divide one-tenth of it off and put it to the side as a tithe to the Lord, and the rest you pour in your tea. 
That's how they lived. They literally went to such extremes in their observance of the law. They didn't have iced tea, but you get what I'm saying. (laughs) So to say that you were a Pharisee was to say you were radical when it came to Israel's law. In Paul's day, there were only about 6,000 Pharisees. So this was an elite group. And for Paul, it was a family affair. We learn in Acts, his father was a Pharisee. He was the son of a Pharisee. But he, he left his father in the dust. He far exceeded him. And over in Galatians 1.14, he's further reflecting on his past. And he says this. He says, I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my contemporaries, among my countrymen, being more extremely zealous for my ancestral conditions. Or traditions, rather. And so there's just no stopping this young buck named Saul at the time. In fact, speaking of his zeal, that leads to his sixth badge of honor. He says, verse 6, As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. This is his zeal badge. His zeal led him not just to observe the law, but to hatefully persecute anyone who taught differently. Now there's a, a heritage of righteous zeal in Israel, going back to Phineas, but the Jews in Paul's day, the Pharisees especially, had taken it and turned it into a form of evil. They viewed any opponents to Israel and the law of Moses as enemies to be eliminated. That's clear from the fates of John the Baptist and Jesus, right? This is what they did to those who opposed the law of Moses. The Pharisees were in a way like some Muslims today, Islam today has apostasy laws where if you convert away from Islam, it's considered blasphemy. And blasphemy is punishable by death. And so there's countless stories of such persecution. It wasn't too long ago, there's a 15-year-old girl in Egypt who converted from Islam to Christianity. And not long after, she was attacked by men on the street who threw acid on her and disfigured her, disfigured her forever. And sadly, the Jews in Paul's day, they actually—they weren't much better. They really weren't. And you can picture Paul. Paul's the guy who's holding the coat of the guy who's throwing the acid. That's actually how we meet Paul in the New Testament. He's the guy who's literally holding the coats of all the other Jews who are stoning Stephen to death for believing in Christ, the first Christian martyr. And Paul himself later went from being a supportive bystander to the top inquisitor. He made it his life's mission to find these new Christians and and stamp them out. He would later travel all throughout the region, tracking them down, arresting them. He had such a ruthless reputation that when he actually later came to Christ, at first, the other Christians like didn't want to believe it. They were still afraid of him and thought that maybe this is a trick. He's trying to find out where we are and get in. But in his earlier days, this surely would have been one of Paul's most beloved badges of honor, his zeal, even a persecutor of the church. Lastly, number seven, Paul says that he was, as to the righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. And this, of course, was Paul's righteousness badge. This one was front and center. It was the largest badge He wore it prominently up front for all to see. As we've studied, the Jews and the Judaizers believe that righteousness before God can be found by keeping the law. And when it came to keeping the law, Paul was blameless. 
Now, when he says blameless, he doesn't actually mean sinless. Some mistakenly think. It's just a common way that they expressed outward conformity to the law. And so it was saying that Paul was a model Jew. That he did everything according to the law. Outwardly, at least, he kept all the rules, all the rituals, all the rites. And this made him, he thought, righteous. So he put all these together. The ritual badge, the race badge, the ancestry badge, the purity badge, the obedience badge, the zeal badge, and the righteousness badge. And you can just picture Paul, he's just decked out with all these badges of honor stamped on his clothes. And with each one came increasing confidence in being justified before God. These badges were the grounds of his confidence. He relied on them. He trusted in them to save him, to to deliver him before God. You can picture a person up at night. They're anxious. They're lying awake in their bed. They can't sleep. They're thinking, am I going to heaven when I die? Well, Paul could have consoled himself thinking, well, I am a true Jew. I'm of the people of God. I'm circumcised. I keep the law of Moses with zeal. In fact, I keep it better than anyone else. So, yeah, of course I'm going to go to heaven. If anyone's going to be getting in, it's, it's me, he, he could have thought. It's like every, of these, every single one of these badges of honor were, were like money in the bank. Paul had a savings account in the bank of heaven, and with each new badge of honor came a multi-million dollar deposit into that account. And he was, he was rich. Surely, he thought, I've got enough credit in my account. I've earned enough credit in my account that it's going to pay the entrance fee into heaven. I'm going to get in, of course. But then something happened. What happened? Well, like we read, Paul met Christ. He came to know Christ. And the light of Christ shone on his heart. And that light blinded him but gave him true spiritual vision for the first time ever. And he could see things clearly. And you know what was the first thing he saw, spiritually speaking? He saw that, as Jesus said, the flesh profits nothing. The flesh profits nothing. He saw that everything he was born with, everything he had worked for, it all amounted to Nothing before God. It all added up to zero. All these badges of honor that were on his clothes, so to speak, they just they were meaningless to God. He, he did not have any regard for them whatsoever. They're false hopes and false confidences that did not make him right with God, even a percent. Just to continue with this banking analogy, because Paul goes on to use accounting terms like gain and loss, you got the picture of Paul or Saul. He's filthy rich when it comes to the bank account of works righteousness. He's a billionaire. He's got the most. His profits are soaring. But then in an instant, the light of Christ shines on him. And he realizes all of his profits are actually losses. His assets become liabilities. His gain turns into deficit. Everything he worked for is lost. It's all worth nothing. He realizes he's, he's bankrupt. And he still has a debt to pay before God. We all do. But now he's, he's bankrupt. He, he thought he could pay it, but now he, he has no hope. You really have to put yourself in the shoes of a, of a devout Jewish 
Pharisee to get how, how big of a deal this is, how shocking. It's what they might call a paradigm shift. Like this is a game changer for his mind. He spent his entire life storing up these works righteousness. His whole life he thought he had a safe nest egg of profit before God. But in an instant, all gone, vanished when he met Christ and realized that's not the way. He was on the, he's in the wrong direction. His eyes were open to see everything he stockpiled was actually trash before God. Even worse, his works righteousness were actually keeping him away from God because they were a false confidence. Such a mind-blowing thought to a Pharisee. A shock to the system, like you've got a retirement account, you're counting on it to get you through your retirement years, and you go check your account, and it's zero. It's gone. just vanished. Imagine that the sinking feeling you would have, thinking like, what am I going to do for to live now? And Paul experienced that spiritually time, times a million. But he wasn't left empty-handed. Because in the same moment that he found out that his spiritual bank account was empty, filled with fool's gold, he also discovered that he had access to another account, an account he didn't know before, and that is Christ's account. And Christ's account is filled with infinite, perfect righteousness, true righteousness. All the righteousness you need to stand before God, and you need it, it's all right there. It's in Christ's account. And Christ, he's opened the doors. It's free for all who might go in. His credit can be yours by faith, but only if you go to him. And you have to go to him empty-handed. You must come with nothing else, trusting in nothing else. Christ demands an exclusive faith and trust. And Paul was finally ready to do that because he realized he's got nothing. He has nothing else. He's bankrupt. And so you see, actually, Paul realizing that he had nothing before God on his own was actually the best thing that ever happened to him. For while he was clinging to his own treasure, it was keeping him out of the kingdom. Salvation, rather, comes by clinging to Christ alone, which means you have to let go of all of your efforts. I'm a multitasker. I like to get several things done at the same time. So when it comes to, for example, taking groceries out of the car, up the stairs, I'm the guy that loads them all up. They make it all in one trip, like hands through all the bags. Doing that since I was a kid. We have 20 stairs, so it behooves me to do it in one trip. I don't want to go back downstairs. But sometimes you come home and you've got an object that's so large and cumbersome, you have to carry it by itself. Like those, you know, Costco paper towel rolls. They're just way too cumbersome and, and just bulky. You've got to carry it by itself. You have to put everything else down and make a solo trip. And you can kind of think of faith like that, and that it requires all of your effort. You can't hold on to anything else and Christ at the same time. Mutually exclusive. If you're, if you're latching on to Christ... You must first put down, put away everything else. And we're talking, of course, about yourself. Trust in yourself. Counting on your badges of honor. Relying on your birthright, your efforts. All of that you must cast down to gain Christ. Here's how this 
spiritual accounting works. It's really simple. If you have everything in the world minus Christ, you have nothing. If you have nothing but Christ, you have everything. And this is what Paul learned that day. That salvation is found in Christ alone. And that's what we mean when we say alone. Christ alone. And when Paul learned this, he was confronted with a choice, though. This choice serves as the first checkpoint on that narrow path to salvation. And the choice is to reject the flesh or not. But the first checkpoint is you must reject the flesh. You must reject the flesh. You must count all your efforts, your deeds, your self-righteousness as nothing. You realize you have no hope of being justified before God on your own. You think you can really be righteous enough. All we do is sin. We still, even with the law, all we do is violate it every day. Rather, your only hope is Christ. But to gain him, first, you have to lose everything else. Give it all up, all that you were trusting in. This is what Christ meant when he said, first, you want to follow me? You have to deny yourself. He said the same thing. Paul made the right choice. Look at verse 7. Just a preview, really next week, but verse 7, Philippians 3. After listing his old boasts, he said, but whatever things were gain to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of of all things, and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. We'll come back to these verses next week, of course. Pay more attention to them. But you can, you can already see what must be done. Whatever things were gained, all of his badges of honor, he counted as loss. You can picture an accounting ledger, and the profit margin has all these items, just so much there. But with one stroke of the pen, Paul says, prophets, these are now loss. These are all loss, all deficit, all liabilities. They're all gone. That's how you must count your righteous deeds before God to save you. Like Isaiah said, Isaiah 64, verse 6, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment. That's your best before God, apart from Christ, is still like a filthy garment to God. But there is good news that if you realize this and you see the light of Christ, that you can gain him. That's all you need. That's that's the only thing you need to gain is just him and his righteousness, which he gives to you for free by faith. That's all you need. We'll talk more later about gaining Christ and his righteousness. That's to come. You see what must be done. And for now, just... Just make sure of this, that you have passed through that first checkpoint. You have and you are rejecting the flesh. You're not counting on yourself, your righteousness to save you. Before you gain Christ, you must lose everything else. Like Paul, you must count all your efforts, all your accomplishments as loss. Suffering even the loss of all things to gain Christ. What did Paul really lose? Well, he he cast down his own badges of honor, but it it cost him even more. You realize there's more to lose here. He also lost his status 
in Judaism, his reputation, his ticket to fame and fortune, his birthright, he was surely disowned. He lost his property, his health, he was beaten for Christ. Eventually lost his life just, to, just for Christ, just to follow Christ. But you know what? It was still all worth it. Because he lost all that stuff, but he gained one thing. He gained Christ. But that was enough to make him eternally rich. It's all you need. Paul was then happy to regard his deeds of righteousness, his badges of honor, he says, as rubbish, which means trash. The word literally is used to refer to dung, something that has no value, that's just meant for the trash heap, nothing else. That's how he regarded all of those badges, all that righteousness, self-righteousness, just worthless. So it's fair and fitting for you to ask yourself now, have you made it past this first checkpoint? Yourself, have you come to the same realization? I, I trust you have been at this church before. You've heard all this before, but if, if you haven't, or maybe you've been at another church, and if you've never heard this taught or preached, that, that's a problem. This is, this is literally the heart of the gospel, that it's not us, it's Christ and his righteousness that, that we need. In Paul's experience here, it's normative. You have to pass this way. If you don't pass through this checkpoint, you're on a different road, and that doesn't lead to life. You're you're in danger. You must pass through this checkpoint first. Come to see your own deeds, your own efforts, even all the religious stuff you do. That doesn't save you. That's not helping you. You have to empty your hands of everything to gain Christ, that you may be justified simply by faith. And I'll tell you, though, sadly, so many people, even today, they're still deceived into thinking they can be good enough. And many people, they're just like the old Saul. They boast in their flesh, in their accomplishments. Like modern-day Pharisees, they, they wave their badges of honor, thinking that will get them to heaven, that will make them right with God. I'm surely God would accept, accept someone good like them, right? What are some of these modern-day badges of honor? They've changed we're no longer in a Jewish background per se, but not all that different. There's the ritual badge, which is no longer circumcision, but many boast in baptism. I was baptized in junior high, so of course, you know, I'm, I'm good. Or, you know, they're always at church. I never miss a Sunday. I'm there every time the doors are open. It's, it's my thing. It's my ritual. I'm always there. Like that makes them right with God. Those who grew up in the church can pull the race the race or ancestry badge, in a manner of speaking. It's like they, they've grown up in the church. They're essentially born a Christian. Their family's Christian. Everybody they know is Christian. They've always been in the church. It's all they've ever known. And so they're, they're cut above everyone else. Some claim the purity badge, referring to their orthodox doctrine. They're not like those lukewarm, watered-down Christians who don't know anything. They, they've got all the right boxes of sound doctrine checked. They, they study their Bible really well. They, they know it all. We've got the obedience badge. It's still a big one where Christians boast, look, I don't, I don't drink, I don't smoke, I don't swear, I don't, I don't do these God, ungodly things. I live on the straight and narrow, and, and they're, they're hoping like that, that, that gets them in the door. That, that makes them right with God. They obey God with zeal. And speaking of zeal, another common boast, like, look, 
I read my Bible so much. I pray so much. I mean, I go to the prayer meeting. I'm always praying. I pray two hours a day. Do you pray two hours a day? I pray two hours a day. They're serious. And then, of course, the righteousness badge, just all things that they do, thinking it makes them right with God. That's what righteousness means, really, in essence, being right with God. And they're just counting on themselves. And it's really not all that different. And look, these things, they're actually, they're not bad. Paul wasn't saying, for example, circumcision is now evil. That's not the point. These things can be good. They can be spiritual fruit. They can give you some assurance of salvation. But don't confuse that with justification. Because none of these things can make you right with God. And I hope you get that. That you're not right with God. We're all sinners. We fall short of his perfect righteousness, which he requires as entrance into his kingdom. Perfect righteousness. We're not there. We fall short, and none of these things can make you right. Going to church, getting baptized, reading the Bible, giving money, none of that gets you one inch closer to the kingdom. Again, don't misunderstand. These things aren't bad, but they just can't save you. If you turn these things that we do after you become a Christian, you turn these things into badges of honor, relying on them to make you right with God, well, then they become worse than bad. They become damning because your hands are now full of your own accomplishments, so you can't grab onto Christ. Your hands are full. You can't latch onto Christ and be truly saved by faith in him alone. So realize this morning that the flesh profits nothing. And you must, like Paul, count all your deeds, your efforts, your religious works, your self-righteousness as rubbish. Cast it all down. Your hands are empty. Now you can gain Christ. Eventually, everyone will make this realization that your gain is loss, that your works mean nothing. You either realize it in this life, when the light of Christ shines upon you, or you'll realize it in the next as you're turned away and the judgment of Christ weighs upon you. So I urge you to make the right choice now if you haven't already. We'll be back next time to learn more about the next step, which is gaining Christ. But this is enough for you to leave and and just consider, have you made it this far? Have you lost everything that you might gain the one thing that matters. I want to leave you with a couple of verses from Rock of Ages, the, the hymn. Just literally, the perfect lyrics that capture this emptying that must take place first as you come to Christ. Just listen, heed these words, and we're going to respond and sing it meaningfully thereafter. But listen, you know how it goes, right? The second verse, Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked come to thee for dress. Helpless look to thee for grace. Foul I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's pray. 
our great Father in heaven and, and the Lord Jesus Christ. These, these words are our prayer this morning. What can we bring? It's our deeds that got us into trouble in the first place. I think that with unclean hands we can make up for it as just man's folly. And Lord, we all were once there. We all, likewise, once, were counting in ourselves, whether we knew it or not. But we thank you for sending Christ first to die on that cross, to make his perfect righteousness available to us, to pay for our sin debt and give us what we need. Apart from that, none could be saved. And now, Lord, the, the, day, the way is open. The gate is open. It's still a narrow path, but we thank you for, for opening the way and, and for letting the light of Christ shine in our hearts as well, that we might see the way, the truth, and the life, and that it's Christ alone. There's no other way. But first, Lord, we must, like the song goes, empty our hands. Nothing in our hands we bring. Simply to the cross we cling. That, that's the only badge we can flash before you to gain entrance. It's, it's Christ and his cross, what he did for us as our only hope. If there are any here this morning, Lord, that have not made that their hope, they've not consciously decided to cast down their deeds and pick up Christ alone, that they would do so now and you would save them. You would make them born again, even this morning, to change them and call them to you from a Saul to a Paul. And for the rest, may we just really worship now as we remember what you did for us and continually not count in ourselves. This is not a one and done. We must every day not fall back into trusting in ourselves, but daily hope in Christ and in Christ alone. We want to sing your praises now. Let's do this. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.